0: My name is Shana Hertzfeld and I am a student project manager for the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm here today interviewing Dr. Ian Lustick, who is an expert in the field of Middle Eastern politics. He has written many books and articles on this subject, including the award-winning Paradigm Lost from Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. Thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. For the first question, I just wanted to ask why you got into this field in the first place. Why study Middle Eastern politics, specifically this conflict?
1: I would say that uh, I was driven into the field by my values, what I was concerned about most in college and in high school, and uh, by the fascinating details of it. I come from a Jewish background Jewish family my many members of my family were killed in the Holocaust and that was a reason for me to try to find as much justice in the world and build as much justice in the world as possible I came to the conclusion when, uh, that that meant learning about the world as much as possible and the one issue I cared about most it seemed was Israel because it seemed like Jews after the Holocaust were able to build something positive. And it occurred to me that I was very lucky because in college I learned that all problems are grays. There's no black and white. But in my case, it felt like everything I cared about was just black and white. There was the Holocaust, bad. There was the Germans, bad. I mean, there was the Jews, good. Israel, good. But when I started arguing with people, during the anti-war movement, uh, the Vietnam War, we were arguing about everything. I couldn't tolerate it if the person I was arguing with knew more than I did. And so I started really studying, and I actually went to Israel as a junior, and I spent six months there. And the more I studied, the more I learned that the reason I thought that my problem was one that was black and white, and I was so lucky, was not because it really was but because it was my problem and all people felt that way about their problems they felt that everybody else is gray but their world is not so then they t- I convinced myself wow my world really is gray and I have got to master the shades of gray and that takes deep learning and that's why I spent my life studying it.
0: yeah I had a similar experience I think coming to college you you learn it's gray, so that's a really good way to Put it, and I think coming to the conclusion that learning as much as possible is admirable and correct. I guess as as correct as I, I, I
1: was. I went to Brandeis University, and the motto there is "Truth even unto its innermost parts."
0: Yeah, it's a good motto. So you you mentioned the Holocaust, and I know you talk about the term Holocaustia in your book, and its effect on Israeli politics. So could you talk a little bit about
1: that? Yes, uh, that's a very sensitive and complicated issue, and I'm glad you asked the question. There's a difference between the effect of the Holocaust and the effect of the way the Holocaust is remembered. Every historical event is remembered differently as time goes on. Every generation looks back and argues about what happened in the past from their own point of view. Even great literature looks different when it's read through the lens of contemporary ideas and so on. So what I did in in this case is I studied not what the Holocaust was in Israel, but how the Holocaust was remembered in Israel. And I found that there were actually multiple ways that the Holocaust was remembered and how it became a part of Israeli culture, the collective memory of the Holocaust. Uh, And three examples I used were, at first, one of them was a major way the Holocaust was remembered was that it was an object lesson proving that Zionism was correct and that Zionists who said you couldn't trust living among the Gentiles and who violently, often violently, opposed the, the Nazis were the ones who showed the way. Now, whether it wasn't just Zionists who fought against the Nazis, but it's certainly true that the Zionists were among the most vociferous before the war warning of the possibility of a catastrophe. So a lot of the early way that Israelis remembered the Holocaust was don't tell us about the suffering of the people. Those people, if they didn't deserve this, they didn't listen to the warnings. So they're the ones that got caught. But really, now we're in a new world and we want to go forward. All we know is that Zionism is correct and Israel is correct. So that was one way to remember it. Another way was, you know, the Holocaust, the the, the Gentiles are always killing the Jews. And this time around, what's different is not just the scale of it, but they actually feel guilty. This is what Ben-Gurion and Sharet said in the early 50s. We have to take advantage of the fact that the Gentiles feel guilty and get reparations for Israel especially because eventually they'll stop feeling guilty. So it was like a an opportunity that shouldn't a wasting asset is the way it was remembered. Now at the same time there were those who thought about it differently, who thought actually what the Holocaust is a proof that Gentiles are all potentially Nazis, and that anti-Semitism is never going to be eradicated, that if you're a Jew, you are a target of this, and that any criticism of what Jews do could be the beginning of a Nazi attack. And this, this sense that we're all survivors, all Jews are constantly under threat, produced a culture of what I call Holocaustia. So you can have thousands of books all the time coming out on the topic, where Israeli teenagers are brought in masses to concentration camps and to ghettos in Germany, very carefully shown and actually purposefully traumatized in order to make them feel as if they are survivors and they and they can only be safe in a Jewish context and politicians like Menachem Begin and others who used <coughs> who used the image of all Gentiles and especially Arabs and especially Palestinians as anti-semites ready to slaughter all Jews to sabotage all chances for peace this culture took a hold this culture of Holocaustia to the extent that in polls you find that after it took a hold Jews feel that it's more important to remember the Holocaust than to and then any other and to believe in God or any other uh, relationship to Judaism so I'm interested in how that domination of that particular way of remembering has affected Israel and has affected the Arab-Israeli conflict because there are other ways one can remember the Holocaust and it was also remembered this way in Israel for a time during the Eichmann trial as a lesson about human rights that this was a crime against humanity, not a crime against Jews, never again against anyone. And that's also a theme in some Israeli textbooks from the 1980s and 90s, but those textbooks have been abandoned by the current governments, going back to this Holocaustia framework, this Holocaustia memory. And that's what the chapter is about in my book.
0: I'm curious how if it does apply to America if that has taken hold the same way, whether among America as a whole or Amer- Jewish American communities?
1: Well, that idea is definitely, I mean, I think I was I was a part of it. Mm-hmm. I felt it. Um, growing up, uh, knowing what happened to my family, reading books about the Holocaust, articles about the Holocaust every month of my life, from uh, adolescence through college, I've been traumatized so that I, I, I know what it is in Israel. most Jews know what it is you hear the word barbed wire or you see it carbon monoxide or a barking German shepherd and immediately there's like hyperlinks in your mind that go to the Holocaust and that is what I mean by Holocaustia so it takes real work and it takes time to essentially not forget the Holocaust and not not remember it but not allow it to do, to, to to damage what Jews can actually be and do in the world, mm-hmm. and that is partly a function of how they can get along with other people and respect uh, equal rights of Palestinians, as long, along with all others.
0: Mm-hmm. You you mentioned it in the kind of answer before, but remembering the Holocaust in this way is the most important thing. You don't have to believe in God, but you have to right. you have to remember the Holocaust that way. I, so switching gears a little bit to talk more about like Israeli policy, I know you talk in the book about Israel's nuclear monopoly within the region, and I was curious how, I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, but just for the purposes of the interview, how does that influence the possibility for a two-state solution based on compromise or negotiations?
1: Well, first of all, my book argues, and I believe, that there is no possibility of a negotiated two-state solution. In the old days, when there was, the nuclear deterrent that Israel has was an argument in favor of the two-state solution because it represented the fact that Israel's existence would be ensured by its deterrence and not by where the borders were drawn because the real threat to Israel's existence would not be by an actual invasion across the border. Now that's sort of immaterial. In that particular argument, is immaterial. Instead, the nuclear monopoly that Israel currently has in the, in the region uh, plays another role. The right wing in Israel has never had a formula that it could offer the Arabs. It's something that even the right wing thought they could the right wing is now in power. Whether the left and the center actually er, ever offered something genuine is another question, but at least in theory they had the two-state solution they could talk about. Since the right never had any way to talk about peace sincerely, they didn't want the issue raised, like what are you actually willing to do? How do you avoid talking about peace in the Middle East? You do it by using force at no cost so they can send the Israeli Air Force over Lebanon or Gaza or Syria. And they've done it many, many times. And they don't have to take a risk by doing so so that the politicians don't raise the possibility of a destructive war. They can just keep the problem at bay with violence and convincing the rest of the world that it's... All the violence one sees as a result of anti Semitism or Arab extremism. The problem with Iran's nuclear, th- the Iranian nuclear threat, is not that Israel wouldn't deter it with its own nuclear weapons. Of course, that's why Israel has nuclear weapons, so that threats like that would be deterred. The problem is that its conventional superiority would not be able to be used as freely and at, no- at zero cost, zero risk. And once that happens, if Israel can't just bomb Gaza whenever it wants, it can't just bomb Lebanon or Syria without possibly triggering a nuclear crisis, then it raises questions in Israel. Wait a minute, this is an unsustainable policy. As soon as you recognize that that's unsustainable, you have to talk about peace, and the right cannot talk about peace. So ultimately, the reason for this nuclear scare about Iran is not really about the fear of an Iranian attack, but the fear of the loss of the Israeli ability to use conventional force at will.
0: So, again, switching gears a little bit, talk about the role of the UN a little bit. Whether they've been an effective peacekeeper is not maybe the best way to phrase it, but their role in peacekeeping or negotiations between the different powers in the region?
1: Uh, in, different po- in some places, the UN plays a very specific role still. In, in Lebanon, for example, you have uh, UN observers. You have UN observers in other places also, and those observers play an important role. But the UN has not been an effective peace-negotiating mediator for a long time it's been a punching bag for Israel because the General Assembly is so dominated by outrage against Israeli policy toward Palestinians and the Security Council is thwarted in taking action by an American veto which is almost exclusively used when Israel comes up so therefore the UN has been crippled at the same time smaller agencies within the UN are permanently charged by the General Assembly to monitor what's going on in Palestine. So there's a stream of information that pours out of the UN that's very negative from an Israeli point of view, but that keeps uh, the issue alive for most of world opinion Mm -hmm. quite effectively. It's also, in principle, a place which can, if the Security Council acts, uh, make a real difference that all hinges on whether the United States, on which issues of the United States or an American president finally decides, all right, I can't swallow this. So many times the American president, for domestic political reasons, vetoes a Security Council resolution that's critical of Israel. But once in a while, it does not. And when that happens, it can have a major impact.
0: Would you mind talking a little bit more about the role of the observers themselves, um, if there is any beyond what you have mentioned Art? You
1: know, there really isn't. I mean, in UNIFIL, they watch, can confirm who went where, who did what, and the UN plays a role in helping Palestinian refugees survive in Gaza and elsewhere, the UN Relief and Works Agency. I think that the fact that Palestine is an observer at the UN is also important. And Palestinians have the opportunity at some time in the future to apply for membership. All of that is politically and diplomatically important. But in general, the UN is not the place where action has been and negotiations since it had to go back almost to the early 70s in the Gunnar Yaring mission to have it be really important.
0: Yeah. I know you mentioned a little bit in the last answer the American veto. So going off of that, the role of American Israeli advocates—how has that played a role?
1: One of the themes in my book, in fact, one of the mottos I have at the beginning is in Yiddish, "Mantraht and God laughs." Man plans and God laughs. So that is so true about this conflict, and it's one and it's true about Israel advocates in the United States. There was a tremendous guilt among American Jews after the Holocaust that they didn't do anything effective to stop it. So, when Israel approached the United States, uh, American Jews in the 50s and 60s, and asked for help politically, American Jews responded with a lobby that's probably, without question, the most effective foreign policy lobby. And it, it's up there with NRA and the, uh, uh, the retirement. Lobby. And and what that has meant, it was designed to say, let's allow the Israeli government to solve problems without the United States pressing on Israel. So, no matter, now that was fine as long as the Israeli government had more or less governments ready for some kind of moderate compromise along American interest lines. But that stopped being the case because Israeli governments got so extreme and the lobby itself changed to be under the control of a small number of extremely wealthy extremely right-wing American Jews the effect of the importance of the lobby has been that no president has been able to follow through on what he wanted to do which was to organize some kind of compromise territorial compromise and that's true of Carter that was true of Reagan that was true of Gerald Ford, it was true of, of Clinton. I mean, that's true of Obama. It's true of all the presidents. To an extent, even Trump, but I would exclude Trump, I guess. The unintended consequence of a lobby being that strong is that it moved Israel to the right because the argument that was, had, would have been able to win in Israel, that we can't keep the territories and have peace, and have American support, we have to, we're going to lose American support. We're going to lose world opinion. The right wing said, no, we won't. We can do whatever we want, and the Americans will never punish us. Well, it turns out they were right. So what happened in Israel is that Israeli politicians found that if they took leftist or moderate positions on the Palestinian problem, they would lose to candidates who promised the Jews in Israel that they could have everything they wanted. So the unintended consequence of building a lobby as strong as the Israel lobby in the United States was to push Israeli politics way over to the right and destroy the careers of politicians like Yossi Sarid or Shulamit Aloni or Yossi Balin, who could have led Israel in a very different direction.
0: Do you think that the, obviously the role of Palestinian advocates in America has not had nearly as great an effect in terms of their power and size as Israeli-American advocates. Uh, Jew- Jewish-Americans. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, but of course it's not just American Jews. It's also evangelicals right. And, right. and others, uh, and that's important to remember. But yes, the organization and, and mobilization of the pro-Israel community has been amazing, yeah. and it's a credit to them. It's what you're supposed to do in the United States. That is how our, how our country is organized that the, if you really care about something, you should organize and put pressure. That doesn't mean that you'll like what you get in the end mm-hmm. because you could. It, it so paralyzes the system when you're that successful. I'll give you an example of just how bizarre it is. And there are two issues in foreign policy where American policy is what's called in statistics three standard deviations from the international norm. It's so far away that you can't explain it. Those two issues are Cuba and Israel. Mm-hmm. Why would those two issues be the two issues that the United States is so far from the international norm? So when there's a vote in the UN on whether to boycott Israel for something, it's 140 to 2, or 140 to 5 against the United States and Israel. But when there's a vote in the UN about whether to boycott Cuba, Israel and the United States are the only countries voting in favor of the boycott. Mm-hmm. So it has nothing to do with whether boycotts are normal. It has nothing to do with the, with the rights and wrongs mm-hmm. or the um, interests of the United States. It has to do with the fact that there's a Cuba lobby in Florida that's politically extremely important, and there's an Israel lobby in the whole country but certainly in Washington, which is impossible to uh, confront successfully uh, except on very small, narrow
0: occasions by presidents. Yeah. So one last question to sort of wrap it up. I know you talk about there's a Jewish reality of being poor. How has that, just sort of to wrap it up, how has that affected Israel's political dealings with the Arab nations that surround it.
1: The fact that there's a Jewish diaspora? Yeah. There was a time when uh, when Israel did not want the diaspora to exist. Part of Zionism was shlilat to, ha-galut, to negate the exile, to all Jews should come to Israel. And Ben-Gurion was one of the big advocates of that. In fact, one relation, one relation, his reaction to the Holocaust had a lot to do with the fact that he didn't have the emotional connection to Jews who didn't live in Israel or who wouldn't make a contribution to Israel by coming there. And he'd been criticized for that lack of emotional connection. That was abandoned in the 50s when... American Jews told Ben-Gurion, stop telling our children to, to leave us. If you keep doing that, we will stop giving you money. Well, Ben-Gurion wanted the money, and he wanted the political support. So Israel made a trade with the diaspora. You give us political support and money, and we'll stop telling your children to come here. Now, they didn't completely tell him to stop coming, but they agreed that Jews can live a real life as Jews not in Israel. This was the big compromise that occurred. There is some ways in which Jews, and I'm one of them, have pushed Israel in the direction of moderation. Who live in the diaspora? But, there, but the, it has to be said in the final analysis that the small group of very wealthy right-wing Jews in the diaspora have had a much bigger and more successful effect on Israeli politics. So Sheldon Adelson, who died not too long ago, is one of the biggest funders of Netanyahu Mm -hmm. and of settlements in the West Bank. In fact, there's a newspaper in Israel that's the dominant newspaper now. It's free. Mm -hmm. It's distributed daily, free to all Israelis Mm -hmm. who want it. And uh, uh, Israel Hayom, it's a Netanyahu newspaper completely funded by Adelson. Mm -hmm. That's just an example. So the effect of the diaspora either through the lobby or through individual actions like that, is quite phenomenal in in extremizing Israeli policy. That's also been, there's a disproportionate presence of Americans, extreme Americans, in the Israeli settlements also Mm
0: -hmm. in the West Bank. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. That's our interview for today. I appreciate your time in answering those questions, and I look forward to learning from your talk tonight. Thank you very much.